Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. I am your host, Joni Kinwall-Moore. I'm an RN, an ethnobotanist, and the founder of Snacktivist Foods. Join me on this journey as we explore the ideas, stories, and personalities behind the regenerative food system movement, including climate change, human health, economics, and food, as well as other deeply interconnected topics. Food is the connection between people and planet. In a world where pandemics, climate change, and war have made us feel so disconnected and vulnerable, regenerative agriculture has become a powerful force for positive transformation and hope. Here, regenerative thought leaders share how agriculture and food design can create a more resilient system. Hey, hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Chef Pierre Chiam joining us from, where are you today, Chef? Where are you? I'm in the, bay, in the Bay Area today. I just returned and I'm here for, I mean, that's where I'm located. I'm in the Bay Area. In okay. California. Okay. I think the last that's time I spoke region. with you, you were in Hawaii. <laughs> Oh, that's right. I yeah. was in Hawaii last time. That's uh, my wife has family there, so we spend quite some time there during the pandemic, in particular since we could be anywhere. So we were there for most time. Sounds like a great place to be stuck, and honestly, so well. Thank you so much for joining us. And today we're going to talk about forgotten crops and regenerating desert soils and rural economies. Something that I know you're very passionate about and have a, you know, very, I know you have a lot to say about this topic, which is why I'm so excited to have you on our show today. But first, I think it would be wonderful for our listeners to learn more about you as a person and a little bit about your background, like where you grew up, what your early years were all about. I know that you ended up in the New York metropolitan area and um, working in the restaurant business in the early 2000s, but I don't really know a lot about your early years. Would you like to? Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, absolutely. I just make a little correction. Actually, New York working in restaurant world was actually in the early 90s. Oh, wow. Okay. A decade decade earlier. Yeah, I've been in this food world for a little over three decades now. Um, I grew up in Senegal. I was born and raised in Dakar, which is the capital city of Senegal. For those of you who don't know, Dakar is the most western coast of africa so it's like the country that's located in the most western coast and um formerly a french colony so that's the official language and i you know i grew up uh, like uh, uh you know any any dakar boy that means i had ocean i was swimming a lot lots of seafood on the diet this was a part of uh, uh that's the our source of protein. Seafood was the, the most accessible one. Meat was very, very limited. And, uh, and, and, and today seafood is becoming also limited. Unfortunately, the oceans have been depleted. That's another topic I can just jump on it too. But, you know, that's mm-hmm. the kind of things I, I, I like to discuss. Mm-hmm. But growing up in Dakar, I was there until uh, I was a student actually in physics and chemistry at Dakar University. And the students in Dakar, is the student movement in particular is very political and i was involved with that student movement and that's a year in the late 80s that's a year when we had a series of strikes that went on for so long that the government decided to shut down the school system wow and that's how we found ourselves in a special moment in our in our life you know that was the whole 
country, the whole generation of students had to start over a new year. And many of us find it as a, uh, a reason to look for other places to continue our studies. And for myself, I decided to look for uh, a school that would take my degree and, and continue my degree in physics and chemistry. And that school, I found it in out of all places in Ohio. So I was on my way to Ohio when I decided to visit New York. Wow. Stopped by New York. And I left New York. I got stuck in New York. <laughs> and 30 years later, I was still That's in New great. York. I was uh, doing something completely different. I wouldn't say completely different because food is chemistry, but I had stumbled in the food world. And, uh, and then I couldn't go on and on, but uh, this yeah. is a, a short way of introducing myself. Well, that's a, that's a fascinating story. And I, I tend to really like people who get stuck in New York. <laughs> I'm really excited to hear your story because I have listened to a few of your talks um, over the years, and uh -huh. but I've never heard what your early life was all about. So I'm excited to, oh. uh, to know that side of the story and how you came to be in, in New York City in the early 90s. Um, what an experience. I mean, New York City is just one of those places on the planet that I think no matter where you come from, it leaves an impression on you. Like no matter where in the world you come from, and if you end up in New York, you'll never forget it. So it's, it's got a magical, a magical feel like that. But how did you end up working <laughs> in restaurants from, I'm, I'm one of those people that I'm in food, but I come from a hard sciences background too. I was biology and chemistry. And, um, and then medical, I was a nurse as well, an RN, and then here I am in food too. So no wonder we get along. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. And New York City indeed is the kind of place you, you never forget. And I, I was just like completely, I mean, it was a culture shock for me. You know, I'm coming from this beautiful, quiet, uh, city, Dakar, like seaside, you know, we have, you know, uh, just a completely different cold. I arrived in New York, it was late fall, so it was cold, first time dealing with the winter. But uh, again, I arrived, and three days after my arrival, that's really when I, I got welcomed by New York. The place I was living in, which was in Times Square area, not the Times Square that you see on TV on New Year's Eve, which was completely different. It was Times Square during the AIDS epidemic and the crack epidemic. You know, I don't know mm -hmm. if you remember that time. New York City was like deep in it. And Times Square was the heart of it. And the place where I was staying, that was called a hotel. It, I don't know why, but that was really the place where, you know, um, there were some immigrants, many from Senegal lived in there. And you had like the whole, you would say the rejects of society, of New York society were living mm -hmm. there. So you had like drug addicts and, you know, you would, there was like shared bathroom with needles on the floor every morning it was just really like a, a scene out of dante's hell you know it was yeah, <laughs> really wow. scary yeah and yeah it, yeah it was that's, a that's whole different was. world i i visited new york for the first time in i think it was 1989 and mm -hmm. there were literally i think people were dead on the street we still don't know but my yeah. sisters and yeah. I were like, I'm pretty sure that person's dead. And it was very, it was very scary. I remember walking around and here we were farm kids from rural Oregon, had no idea what we were getting into. I can only imagine coming from Senegal, it would be extra mm -hmm. um, eye-opening um, just because New York has such <laughs> a, a different edge anyhow. But 
how fascinating that you ended up there and decided to stay in the midst of all of that. But how did you get introduced to the culinary scene and the actual restaurant industry? Well, I, I stumbled into it. You know, I decided to stay in New York kind of forced me to stay. Like I was describing this place I arrived in three days after I arrived, our room got robbed and oh everything, goodness. the money that I had, the, I was supposed to continue, get a bus to Ohio. Everything was gone and I was broke with nothing. I had wow. a return plane ticket to Senegal, which I was very tempted to use mm -hmm. or stay in New York and figure out a way forward. And unfortunately, uh, a friend of mine who also lived in that hotel um, who was working at a restaurant in downtown in the village in that restaurant called Garvin's at the time on Waverly Place. That restaurant was looking for a busboy. And that was the kind of job that didn't require any particular qualification. And I just applied and I took the job. And that's how I stayed in New York. Wow. And that busboy position. Yeah, that's how it I got a foot into the restaurant world, the busboy position, you know, the guy who takes the empty plates into yes. the kitchen. Yes. And then and then I'm going into the kitchen. And that's when I find my first crew, my family, those guys were yeah. like, just these, I mean, I was first shocked by these people who were like all guys in the kitchen. And I'm coming from a culture where only women are allowed in the mm -hmm. kitchen. It's almost in the kitchen. It's almost sacred. You know, it's a gender based yeah. activity. Women in the kitchen, men in the field, right? That's yeah. how we grew up our tradition. So, um, so I'm here in New York and only guys in the kitchen. And these guys are doing this really uh, beautiful plates and, and and i'm there just, just admiring what they're doing and and just becoming gradually friends with them into and, until the chef really took on me the chef was someone who liked to practice his french with me which was one thing and he saw that i was also looking to make money and get out of new york he offered for me uh, another job you know it's like you can do your busboy shifts get some money there and then come and wash dishes you get extra money and then you you and i can practice french as you do that so that was his <laughs> thing and 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 i i took it because i needed the money that i i hated that job i hated it with a passion i mean mm -hmm. i was like mm -hmm. you know finding myself doing this manual thing i always thought i was yeah. you know an intellectual i was gonna do yeah, you know? physicist, <laughs> and, chemist. And, 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 <laughs> wow yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's uh, that's really what uh, I, I really appreciate those moments. Even today in my yeah. restaurants, I often look for chefs or cooks who have been dishwashers before, yeah. you know, because I think they have a certain foundation that's very mm -hmm. important, a certain respect of the kitchen, of the craft. Right. That you cannot get just directly from cooking school. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's training. really what, uh, what I did. Yeah. It, and eventually, you know, cool. I, I, I climbed up the ladder over the years. Sorry to interrupt. You. No, you're fine. I, I, I just love that you, you did this. This is great. Mm -hmm. I love, I love hearing these stories when people have started, you know, at the, the basic point of entry and worked their way through the whole system. I think it plays into like the complexity of your character and what you're doing today. So I'm really glad you're telling this, all of this story. It's wonderful. Yeah, so you worked your way up you and then suddenly yes. you're you're working in the kitchen and you're a chef. Is this yeah, how this yeah. works? Yeah, I mean over <laughs> over the years, yeah, over the years I, I went from the dishwasher to prep, from prep to garde manger, garde manger, eventually on the grill, eventually just really realizing that this is what I'm I'm doing, this is what I like to do, and I'm connecting it with the chemistry. Food is chemistry, and I'm seeing all the connections and all the reactions, the sources and everything was chemical reactions that I could 
taste. I love this type of chemistry much better than I, what was uh, taught to me at, at university. So it really was became a passion. And uh, I left that restaurant. I went to work on an Italian restaurant in, in New York as well for a while, and then a French bistro for a while. And then, uh, you know, I worked, I ended up in Soho at a restaurant that was doing more like ethnic cuisine, more Southeast Asian cuisine. And that's really when I started to look for my food, you know, that food, Southeast Asian cuisine was bringing flavors that was somewhat familiar. You know, they use fermentation in their food. We use a lot of fermentation in our food in West Africa. They like to use fresh fruits and, and, and fresh produce that was just used in a way that just reminded me of, of, of our, of our cuisine, the spices, the bold flavors and all of that made me think about my cuisine in a different way. And I started to revisit my food for memory, food that my mom used to prepare for me. And I would just rethink of it, rethink it and, and present it at uh, the restaurant at the, for the, for the family meals. And people loved it. They were like, just loving the, 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 the flavors. That's oh, I bet. really when I became a mission of mine, That's like wonderful. really bring this cuisine with me. And I mm. think too, at that time, there was a, growing renaissance in the consumer that where they were craving new and different flavors and wanting to have their palate challenged a little bit and thinking outside the box of more classic dining um, structure as it had been before that, which was heavily focused on French and Italian. And mm -hmm. so I, mm -hmm. the timing was probably really, really wonderful. But what did your family and friends back home in Senegal say when you let them know, um, hey, I'm here in New York and I'm actually working in restaurants instead of going to Ohio to finish up my, my schooling. <laughs> they were, they were shocked. They were puzzled. They, they was, it was funny to some of them, you know, just no one pictured me to be in the kitchen cooking. That's, that's just yeah. one thing that, that was not, but, uh, my direct family, my mom was very supportive because she also appreciated food cuisine and she was very, very supportive and reminded me that as a matter of fact, when I was much younger, there was my favorite book was her cookbook collection. She had a cookbook mm -hmm. collection with pictures and I just loved those pictures. And she said yeah. that was something I would do as I was, you know, when I was five years old, I was just going through those pictures. So this was in it already in me. And, uh, mm -hmm. but in Senegal, obviously this wasn't something that people expected to see me doing. It's funny how sometimes the world has a way of putting you back on the track. Maybe you were destined for, even when you had something else in mind. So this is, this is a fantastic yeah. story. So you ended up and you're very famous for founding restaurant, a restaurant in Brooklyn that features it very intentionally, the flavors of West Africa. And then I'm, I'm, you know, making the connection that that led to you meeting your, um, co-founder of Yolele, um, Philip, is that his name? I met him at Expo, a really Philippe, great yeah. guy. And he told, um, he told me, yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear about how those next steps went and what led you to decide to put Fonio, which has a whole nother story that mm -hmm. I'd like us to get to here in a moment, but into, um, into the American kitchen, essentially. So it all came up organically to me. It was like from that time where I realized that I was craving the food of my culture and I was in the food capital of the world. And you know, that was an opportunity. I started to introduce it, you know, uh, with a catering business first, then my first restaurant in Brooklyn, Bed-Stuy. That restaurant was, became a destination and I had an opportunity to write my first cookbook. Mm -hmm. As I was writing that first cookbook, that's when I really saw another opportunity because as I'm writing the cookbook, I also have to think of 
substitutions for some ingredients because they are not accessible, many of the ingredients that I'm talking about. And my readers, who are mostly in the U.S., uh, I wanted them to have a, a, an, an authentic experience. So that's when I started to think of the idea of the, this company that would bring those products, those ingredients, to this market. The idea was started there. And eventually, I started thinking it deeper through when I was writing my second cookbook, which was a book that wanted to go beyond the food. The first cookbook was about the food that it, that inspired my cuisine, the food of my family, the food that I serve at my restaurant. But the you know the 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 the, the next cookbook was a way to really be a continuation, introduce the readers to where is that food coming from? Because oftentimes we forget that, you know, those beautiful plates that we see in our chef's cookbooks, oftentimes we forget that those plates are like ingredients that tell a story. What's the story of those ingredients? Where are they coming from? Who was, who are the producers behind the ingredients? So this, that cookbook was really about that traveling with a photographer around Senegal and spending time with the small farmers, mm -hmm. with the, 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 the fishermen, with the fonio growers. And we met so many interesting people and their stories was telling about the challenges, but about the grains, about the produce, about the, the recipes. And the recipes became also inspired recipes as well as traditional recipes. But most importantly, I was fascinated by ingredients, you know, and this one in particular was called Fonio that I was served while I was in the most remote part of Senegal in the southeast region called Kedugu. And that's an ingredient that that region that those people just value that ingredient. They, they call it the, 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 the grain of, uh, um, for royalty. You know, they serve it to you when you arrive to honor you. And that's called Fonio. And, and I was fascinated because in Dakar, the city, the biggest city in Senegal, you couldn't find that ingredient. And I was wow. wondering why, because it's an ingredient that's so delicate, you know, it's yeah. really a grain for royalty. And, and they tell you all the stories. There's so many, uh, stories that, around that ingredient. And so to me, that was fascinating. I started to research more about the ingredient and found out that not only it's a delicate ingredient, delicious, versatile, but it's also great for the environment. It's an ingredient that grows in poor soil. It requires very little water and regenerates the soil because it has deep roots that add nutrients to the soil. You know, it's very nutritious, a nutrition powerhouse. So all of those things made me naively think that, hey, I live in New York. I'm a chef in New York. You know, I've seen stories of all the ingredients that came up and people take it up. So I can turn this ingredient into a world-class crop. I can introduce it to New York. That's they all, all they need is a market. These people live in the poorest of conditions. They're like among the poorest farmers you can imagine. They live in an area where, you know, I mean, it's the Sahel region of Senegal. It's like the desert is yeah. advancing. You know, it's uh, it's really arid. The the youth have left. They're all trying to go to the city or to go to Europe for opportunities because they don't have any. So if a grain like this could be a, a, a global crop, you know, these people will have opportunities. These people will turn into, yeah. you know, they, they'll be they'll be farmers that grow the soil, and this this soil will be regenerated because there's more growing, more agriculture around around Fonio. So that was my thinking, not yeah. realizing that I had to create a whole chain <laughs> of value, and that was just the, yeah. the, the, the 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 optimistic guy in me, always like yeah. pushing, thinking that nothing can stop me.
And, and that's how I started. And then eventually I came back to New York, introducing the grain to my colleague chefs who loved it, obviously. And chefs were always looking for new flavors. And met who became my, my, my partner, my co-founder, Philippe Tevro, who was also, uh, who came to the restaurant. Um, when I was doing this event, I was, I had this block party where the restaurant became the, 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 the village, the African village. And I would bring drummers and we had How food fun. in the street. We would cook a, cook a whole lamb in the street. Yeah. And Philippe, it, it happens, was like a, a veteran in the food industry who had been working in bringing ingredients to, um, to, to this part of the world. He worked in bringing quinoa to this part of the world many, many years ago. And we discussed the idea and decided to, to make it for, for you. And that's how Amazing. we started. Your yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's an incredible story. I, I love how it, it goes so deep into the transformational side of food where like food really is where humans connect with the planet and connect with each other. And in that way, it's so powerful that something like a traditional, somewhat forgotten grain could have the power to transform a whole you know, environment and economy, and then even globally from a health perspective, when you're starting to, um, you know, put back more nutritionally dense grains into the diet instead of the ones that we've been eating for the last few decades, which are pretty much devoid of nutrition. So mm -hmm. that's fantastic. Um, you know, you, you touched on several points here that I would love to take a deeper dive into, but even the word regenerative, like for you personally, growing up in Dhaka and growing up in the city and, but then spending time in the, in the rural farming areas, when was your first exposure or aha moment when the, the notion of regenerative suddenly became meaningful to you as, you know, something specific, like a specific experience? Well, growing up at the time I was growing up in Senegal, it was just, a part of life, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, am, I grew up in Dakar, but my parents are from the south of Senegal, Casamance, which is the breadbasket of Senegal. And in Casamance, I would spend all my summer time there. My grandparents lived there and every household in Casamance, every, I mean, everyone has, uh, is, they're all farmers, they grow, they all have like, uh, I mean, we, not only we raise our chicken and our ducks and then we have like plots of you know vegetables that we rotate you know it's mm -hmm. all in the same ecosystem so it's like the whole you know what you now later on i discovered that this was um um, um permaculture approach to to agriculture mm -hmm. you know and this was this was a way of life mm -hmm. you know we would everything we would eat would come from these plots, you know, that would be rotating and that live just around our, 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 our habitats about where, around where we live. And that's, that was something that later on, as I was more getting, looking deeper into our food system here and realizing that the food system that is feeding us, the world right now, the New York City and everywhere in America, this food system is completely different. This food system is about monoculture. This food system is about using, you know, uh, chemicals to, to make sure we have the same ingredients, the same products year round, not respecting the season. This is something that I had not known growing yeah. up in Senegal, my, especially in Casamas. I knew that was complete opposite. This was the season that was dictating what we would be eating. This was the season and, and, and everything was, fresh 
everything if everything and you notice it when you first come and you see the difference even in the taste that is something that uh, also was uh, obvious you know the 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 the, the flavors are completely different because the season are not were not respected so that's something i, I realized i learned the reason why only much later and uh, and and realized that we 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 got it we were doing it right <laughs> back uh, growing up in senegal we would do my grandparents and 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 my ancestors had figured it out and somehow down the line you know we we just decided to um feed ourselves a limited number of crops the same thing and 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 year round regardless of the season not not considering the soil making sure that the soil produces what we want instead of being part of nature which is why how my grandparents used to live they were part there was a more harmony like a communication with the environment and right. respecting the environment and respecting the season and and allowing the 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 the, the, the manure of the the animals of the chicken everything that's roaming free is actually feeding the soil and vice yeah. versa and and the, and and just it was a cycle you know a the, holistic, the whole cycle was a being holistic approach. a holistic cycle yeah absolutely yeah it's it's great cuz i you know in in my conversations with many people, there's a wide spectrum of discovery of this notion. There's people who grow up very intimately um, exposed, like you were, like this was normal to you. This was how things should be. Coming to New York was a was an awakening in the opposite way of, in, you know, an introduction into more reductionistic um, industrial farming. And then sometimes we get stories that are quite the opposite. People who grew up um, literally thinking meat came from McDonald's, like having no connection <laughs> to that more holistic model. So I, I, it's really cool that you grew up with that as normal. And then now you're coming back to help share that story with more people and bring them back to that more holistic perspective. So with, um, you know, going back to this desertification that people in sub-Saharan Af Africa are experiencing on a very severe level, um, I think a lot of people don't clearly understand the extent of the desertification that's happening and the, the, the big migration of people and the displacement of people that is resulting from that. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what's happening there and how, you know, phone, like how your programs with agriculture processing can impact this situation? Right, the desertification is been, uh, has been happening as far as I know since I was a kid. I remember in the uh, mid-70s, there was a serious drought and famine in, in, in my country and in that whole region called the Sahel. And, uh, and that's something that we, we had just accepted, not realizing that part of it was we were responsible at our activities you know, Senegal, for instance, like I mentioned earlier, was colonized by the French. And during colonization, our whole agricultural system has been changed to for the profit of the colonizers. So Senegal, for instance, we introduced a cash crop, peanuts. The cash crop was like for French to make peanut oil. And they were forcing our farmers to focus on growing peanuts and ignore the other grains that we traditionally grow and eat like millet millet was a big thing in our traditional diet we ignored it 
We have a rice culture in the south of Senegal, a type, different type of rice culture that was also not encouraged. And what the French did, they brought uh, a broken rice to, to Senegal, broken rice from Southeast Asia because they were also colonizing Indochina, Vietnam. So that broken rice, which was rice debris, rice leftovers, was broken to Senegal and we turned it into our grain of choice, which was a rice that was substandard rice with less uh, uh, nutrition, but it was just the one that was branded to us by the French and, and we just embraced it. And even today, we still are using that rice, we're still importing that broken rice and this part of our national dish, which is unfortunate, but the national dish is delicious, but the rice is not supporting agriculture, is not nutritious. And we are, we have become the largest peanut growers in the world at some point because wow. of that system that the French have brought. But the peanut was grown with chemicals to make sure we brought, bring more, more peanuts. And then uh, it turns out even the, 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 the uh, harvesting of peanuts was depleting the soil because peanuts is a legume and then you're taking the top soil, you're depleting it. And then eventually the desert kept advancing and the soil was losing, the top soil was disappearing. Mm -hmm. In addition to using a lot of uh, charcoal from the wood, so we were cutting trees to use charcoal for the wood for our cooking. This is something that was doing very widespread. Mm -hmm. And so, so for all those, 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 those practices have just turned the, the advance of the desert into had, had just accelerated it in a crazy way. Right. So the way to reverse it, you know, uh, this is some where, where Fonio comes from. It turns out Fonio re regenerates the soil. It brings back the topsoil. Mm -hmm. It adds nutrients to the soil. You know, because it has deep roots and when you harvest fonio and you realize when ladies, uh, the women, because it's a woman harvesting fonio is a women activity. When they harvest it, they just cut the top and they leave the roots on the ground and that mm. fertilizes the ground, the, the ground keeps growing. And then the fonio traditionally was grown in areas with certain type of trees. There are certain trees that fix the nitrogen and those trees you know, we have the acacia tree, for instance. We have the, the nere tree. It's another one that my company, Yolele, uses the, the fruit of it, the fermented fruit that's very popular in our cuisine. That's like adds flavor to many types of cooking, adds mm -hmm. umami. But that tree is also a, a tree that is grown around fonio plantation. And people realize, I mean, researchers realize that when you grow tree, fonio around those trees, the yield is tripled. Wow. Without using any chemicals, you know, it's just nature just working like this. The, the, the roots of those trees fix nitrogen and just add, brings, brings, uh, um, the, the, brings the fonio, triples the fonio production. So this is the kind of, uh, 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 agriculture that can slow the advance of the desert. This mm -hmm. is the kind of agriculture that, that we are supporting. Not only is planting those trees, those trees bring economic opportunities. Uh, acacia, the, you have that one that the sap of it is like used in certain industries. And uh, I mentioned the fruit of the, 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 the nere tree. That's also that other tree that we use that fruit fermented into our cuisine. So that can bring also in another economic activity for the, 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 the people who live in those communities. Mm -hmm. In addition to the market that the fonio will be bringing and, and millet and so on. So we want to be supporting all these different activities and add them into 
our line of products in addition to Fonio, in which we already have studied bringing, adding Moringa, adding fermented locust bean, adding um, uh, that we, we got to keep going in you know, a in very interesting bean called Bambara bean that mm -hmm. used to be traditionally grown in rotation with Fonio. And okay. Bambara bean is actually our, our traditional peanuts. It's different than peanuts. It doesn't have the allergens of peanuts, oh, but it's yeah. very nutritious. And that's a bean that's been disappearing, unfortunately, with colonial time. But we sure. want to bring it back as well. Yeah, so many foods um, have really ex entered an extinction period following the implementation of colonial food systems. And so many of them have such unique properties that makes them very valuable from a from a nutrition and foods system standpoint. So I think um, I love that you're looking at this regenerative by design process in your food product line to where it's not just all about one monocrop. Okay, let's make as much ponio as we can. It's like, oh no, let's look at the whole spectrum. What does this need for healthy crop rotations? Can we bring these other crops into our food products? And then you're growing an entire movement around um, a holistic model, which is really impressive. It's hard to do. I, I can appreciate it because my company here, Snacktivist, is doing similar process. And it's kind of what brought this whole regenerative by design um, mindset together of like, how do we build food and food systems around natural, holistic um, cropping models that have an impact on on the planet? So this it, you guys are doing it. It's so exciting. It's so cool to see. Um, as far as your rural economic impact, I know that you are very intentional and you're a social activist in as far as making sure that all of your processes and your relationships with your partners are also very healthy and helping to bring up the people that you're working with. So it's not like an extraction type model. Can you tell us a little bit about your programs for impacting rural economics? So we, we're working with small farming communities, mostly women. Fonio is known as to be a women activity. And, and that's, that's actually the, the, the way to, to really impact the community when you work with women, because not only you know, the, 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 the way they invest the money that's earned is really to the community, to the family, to their children. So it has a, a much powerful impact than men who would just invest on themselves or, 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 or their, their pastimes. So that's really what we do. And we decided to, to do that. In the beginning, we were working in, in Togo, the region, a country called Togo, with a network of 1300 women. And it was well, 1300 uh, small farming communities, right? And it was um, great. But now the demand has been growing. And, uh, and we find ourselves thinking how to really scale it so that we can satisfy the demand, but also keep our community growing in a, in a healthy way. So we had to figure out also the processing part because the processing is a big challenge. That's the bottleneck. That's really when we realized that the mm -hmm. bottleneck was part of the processing. For you, yeah. processing is, is very difficult. You know, it's a tiny grain that has to be, the skin has to be removed. And, you know, part of it is still manual. So we figured out a way to design a mill that will process it in a way that's much more efficient, not only in a way that eliminates the waste, because right now the standard of processing of Fonio has almost 50% of waste, so which is, which is oh, huge. Wow. We figured out how to eliminate that waste to, to single digits. And in addition to that, we are also 
accelerating the 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 the, the time uh, the, the present time fonio is processed at one ton per day we have uh, figured out how to process it at three tons per hour which is wow. completely different so that's revolutionizing it and we're building that mill in collaboration with uh, partners in mali mali is a big fonio region and those partners are agro industrials who have been working also with the same models of, as ours, working with small farming communities, and they have a network of 20 plus thousand women in that network with farming communities in that network mm -hmm. that collect shea butter. So that's what they've been doing, those partners. They've been collecting shea butter, but shea butter is growing in the same area as Fonio. So oh, those women yeah. have now two activities now. They're adding Fonio to their uh, uh, economic activity to the, it's because they they've been doing it. So and what we do is we're supporting them. The 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 the, the system is we have agents on the, in the villages, about twenty agents in the villages that are organizing the women in their activities of growing fonio and collecting shea butter, and then taking it to the mill that will process it to take it to the to the to the, to the market to the global market. So that's how. Those communities now have access to market. Not only we, the, the agents are there to organize them, but to support them. And we work with NGOs to equip them as well with just very low equipments because Fonio doesn't even require any tilling. It's like a, the grain, mm. they call it the, the, it, the lazy farmer's crop. That's like a nickname for Fonio. It's really yeah. just waiting for the first rain and throw the seeds. And it doesn't matter how consistent the rains are. Mm -hmm. The fonio is guaranteed to grow, which is the fantastic thing about this grain. It's a grain yeah. that, that grows quite easily and it grows very fast. Like in two, max, max, maximum three months, fonio is ready to be harvested. Yeah. So for those farmers, that's a grain that's very important because in time of like inconsistent rains, when the other grains haven't grown or the harvest didn't come, they can rely on fonio. So now developing the agriculture is allowing them to have even more fonio for, for their own selves and for exports so they have income like uh, coming to them to, to to their pockets in addition to having fonio for their consumption that's incredible i i love that you mentioned shea butter because i think right now in the united states that is probably one of the number one connection points for the like a typical u.s consumer let's just say a millennial woman who shops at target as a consumer archetype mm -hmm. She's going to know Shea Butter because she's definitely tried lotion, shampoo, soaps, etc. So it's always nice when you can group things together and give people a tangible, like a, a thread to hold on to, something that helps them um, build a stronger relationship to things that are coming from Africa. And um, there's mm -hmm. so, I think that African foods in general are a huge new frontier of rediscovery for global food systems that have just been long overlooked um, and not just food, but also other other things like shea butter, you know, things that are going to be used for cosmetic application and beyond. But it's a, it's a really powerful story because when you look at what it's going to take to really rekindle rural communities from an economic standpoint so that there's more access to education, more access to, um, you know, just monetary access is huge. It's revolutionizing to big groups of people. It's a powerful notion that eating can actually help impact someone on the other side of the world to have a better quality of life. That's a very powerful thing. I yes, food is, is food is powerful. Absolutely. Food is, uh, food is uh, transformative. 
food is culture food is a great is a weapon you know food mm-hmm. is a weapon that uh, i think uh, if 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 used with integrity can really um, make our world a better place but unfortunately if we don't also are not mindful of how we we use it and this like the food system that we are in right now uh, there is no you know it's not sustainable and we just uh, putting ourselves deeper into not, and not only our health is, is is affected by it, but the health of our planet as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're really intricately connected. And I think that's becoming more and more clear to people every day that we can't treat climate change in this bubble over here and public health issues in this bubble over here and economics in this bubble over here. They really where they all rub together um, is is the action is the action item spot and food represents a huge part of that action. So, you know, to, to go towards the end of our show, because I'm sure you and I could talk all day long. There are so many things I'd love to ask you beyond just these questions. But, you know, I know that you're doing a lot for action to make this dream come to reality. What are some things that consumers can do? Like I think about this show is going to be reaching people mostly in the United States and Canada, maybe in Australia and some in Europe. What are the things that you would have um, our listeners do where they could take action and participate in these programs? Oh, they, they can take action every day. You know, every day when you think about what you're going to eat, you know, you can uh, actually just go to our website, yolele.com and, and, and order Fonio. You have mm-hmm. Fonio even have snacks, Fonio chips now. So you don't even have to cook. If you're not into cooking, <laughs> you can have a healthy snack. And every bite of it is really changing this food system, supporting yeah. in, in supporting economies in, in in rural Africa. You know, so there's like a lot you can do. You know, introducing fonio to people, introducing I mean, having fun with fonio. So it's a very versatile grain. You can do so much with it. You can yeah. bake with it. There's fonio flour. You can just like make salads. I mean, I have a whole cookbook on Fonio. My last cookbook was actually dedicated to the whole journey of Fonio. You can get that book and, and yeah. get inspired by recipes, you know, traditional and imagined recipes. Yeah, that's wonderful. And, you know, Fonio is an incredible grain because I have three kids and we frequently have kids over for dinner. Um, and frequently they're kids who don't usually have moms that cook ethnic food, you know, and so they, they always find it kind of an adventure eating at our house. But every time I serve your products, either the pilafs or the chips, all the kids go crazy mm-hmm. over it. Like every single time, even the ones with moringa in it that are great, have the green, <laughs> those, those chips are on for a little <laughs> bit of a loop, but they love them. And so I think it's a really powerful notion. And I love that you guys have leaned into snacking because it is an, it's like a, easy introduction to something new. There's not a lot to sacrifice or risk when you're enjoying a chip. So mm-hmm. it's a wonderful place to kind of make friends with um, new taste buds and new experiences. Now, you know, you, you've had a very fascinating life and you're obviously very impact driven, but what are the things right now that are giving you hope? Um, you know, the earth is against and the planet and people are up against a lot of big things right now from pandemics to the war to climate change. Like what are the things that make you get out of bed and feel hopeful? Well, I, I'm really like optimistic by nature. As you can see, I've been like just uh, <laughs> this been guiding my life, but things that these crises and how we're reacting to these crises, you know, every crisis is a big opportunity. 
And for, for me, the pandemic has been a, a great opportunity. That's actually how we expanded our, our phone in the, in the market, you know, our, our, and our products line expanded because people were more conscious about what they were eating and they were looking for it into their supermarkets. And, and that's really hopeful to see that consumers are also supporting this movement. You know, talking about another example, we're having this war in Ukraine right now. The war in Ukraine is actually a crisis that's really affecting us in Africa. People don't even make the connection. But Africa, again, because of colonization, Senegal, we eat baguette bread every day, grown by wheat, you know, wheat that we import, uh, the wheat that we don't grow, you know, wheat that was that came to us from France. But today that wheat is coming mostly from Ukraine and Russia. And now we don't have access to it anymore. And Senegalese are addicted to this baguette bread. And Senegal is one example, but across Africa, across actually French colonial past, yeah. you know, the, everyone, everyone is eating wheat, uh, baguette wheat. And, and so now people are thinking how to replace it and return to our traditional grains. We can make baguettes using millet, using fonio flour, yeah. you know, so that's the thinking that's going on. So I'm hopeful to see that uh, hopefully this war ends up soon, but after this war, we don't return to, to, to this, you know, this system that doesn't make sense, importing wheat when we're not even supporting our agriculture. We're actually importing diseases, some diseases that didn't exist before in Senegal that right. now are just like everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's because we change our diet. So, so I'm hopeful to see that these things could be reversed and we know we can reverse it. There's a, a way to it. And we know we can reverse it by just changing our food system and the way we grow our food and the way we we approach the the, the environment. So that's a, that's hopeful. Yeah. I'm, I'm really I'm really looking forward to tomorrow. Yeah, I I that's one of the things I love about my job. And you, you and I work in similar um, communities, but every day we get to talk to people that are doing something meaningful that will make an impact. That you know takes catastrophe and turns it into something that's hopeful that might make for a better world for our children down the road. So thanks for sharing all of that with, with us and our listeners. I, I have a feeling people are absolutely going to love this interview. It so gets us in touch with the human side of this whole movement. And I just really appreciate you opening up and, and really telling us about your life and your projects. It's very inspirational. So I bet people are going to want to know how to order these products and, and you've already given us our, your website, but of course we'll have that in the show notes too. But where else can they find out about your journey? Like what other places should they look to follow or newsletters to subscribe to, et cetera? Well, so I'm in the usual uh, social media, Instagram, chefpiercham.com, which, which is telling you on every day what I'm doing and how this is connected with just uh, this mission at vast, at large, and also on Twitter, where I respond at Chef Pierre Cham, that uh, also, oh. also is my, my handle. I'm on Instagram as well. I'm in LinkedIn. You can find me there. Uh, have a website, pierrecham.com as well, which is also tells you more about the journey in a deeper yeah. uh, sense and, and also recipes as well. Yeah, and there's links to And the cookbooks. Some... I also have cookbooks out yeah, there too. I have three cookbooks. cookbooks. I have a, a fourth one coming up. That's exciting. Yeah, Those yes, cookbooks uh, look incredible. And um, your personal website does have links to a lot of other fascinating articles, your TED Talk, all kinds of cool things. So I'm really encouraging our listeners to take a deeper dive and 
put some Fonio on your plate next week when it comes in the mail. <laughs> so um, thanks it so cooks, much. It cooks in five minutes. It's, it's easy to cook. So yeah, it's not can, only the lazy man's have. crop. It's also the lazy mom's quick fix for dinner is what I've decided. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, and, and everybody loves it. So thank you so much for joining us. This has been so much fun. And I really look forward to the next time we get to connect. Thank you, Jody. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. If you would like to learn more about the principles of regenerative food systems and agriculture, please see the show notes for links to education, a glossary, and guest information. This podcast was brought to you by Snacktivist Inc., a leader in the regenerative food industry. We create delicious foods from regenerative ingredients that are soil-focused, minimize water use, and maximize carbon sequestration, all while radically impacting human nutrition. Learn more about our work at snacktivistfoods.com.